Um, Drew. Drew is uh, a dear friend. Um, I love he and Diane so much. Uh, being a pastor is sometimes pretty lonely work, and to find um, traveling companions such as the Henleys. Uh, Drew is the church planter and pastor at Redeemer down in uh, the Vine City area, just a couple of short miles from here, was sent out from our church uh, many years ago to plant that church, and they now lead a vibrant um, kingdom community in the middle of Atlanta. And I'm so thankful for the work that Drew does. Uh, but more, more importantly, I, I'm thankful for the person that he is. I love he and Diane so much. Um, it has been a joy to walk alongside them over many, many years and watch them have kids and raise their kids and walk out what a kingdom calling looks like in Atlanta. Um, Drew is not just a colleague. He, he's my friend. And we meet regularly, um, always involving chips and salsa. And uh, we cry together, we pray for one another, we complain to one another, we celebrate with one another. And um, I, I count him to be one of the reasons why I'm still in ministry, just knowing that I'm not alone, uh, knowing that I get to walk along, alongside a person of remarkable integrity. Uh, his wife is a, a remarkable woman and a gift um, to their church and their family and their community and to me. I've loved knowing and walking alongside Diane over the years. And so, y'all, we have a real gift to have one of our planters come home and preach. Um, I didn't want to talk about hell, so I gave him the lectionary text to talk about hell today. So I get to sit on the second row and let Drew do the heavy lifting. Drew, come on up here. Um, I love this man. Let's give him a, give him a hand. Good morning. Uh, so good to be here. Um, this does feel like kind of home away from home uh, for Diane and I uh, and our kids. Uh, we used to sit right over there uh, for a number of years as members and then on, uh, on staff and then since being sent out as a church planter uh, almost a decade ago. Um, and everything that Chris said, I, I feel that uh, so deeply. Uh, as a pastor, you you kind of have a weird relationship with friends in the church, and, you know, it's, we love it. We are so thankful for the role and the calling God's given us, um, but it can be lonely at times. Um, and so our pastor friends, not only are friends, but also kind of serve as, as pastors to us. Um, and so Chris has served in that role. Um, though we don't, you know, you and I don't share church Sunday morning, we, we share a pastor. Uh, Chris, has walked, Chris has walked with us through some really dark times, uh, has cared for us, has literally held our hand uh, as we have not known what to do in life. Um, and we are so thankful. Diane and I would not be who we are uh, without Chris um, and his guidance. So thank you so much. Um, and so not only do I get to talk about hell, but also money uh, on the same Sunday. Uh, so here we go. Uh, let's open up your Bibles if you got them. Uh, Luke 16, it will magically appear on the screen as well. Um, but this is Luke 16, starting in verse 19. I'm going to read it. I'm going to pray. We're going to thank God for it. I'm going to pray, uh, and then I'll dive into this uh, passage. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip 
the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner evil things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us is a great chasm that has been fixed, so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. He said, Then, Father, I beg you to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them so that they will not also come into this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. He said, No, Father Abraham, but if, anyone, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, Neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for the Bible. So thankful that we come in our daily time with you as well as on Sunday mornings. And we recognize that we are called to submit to it. Father, I pray that we would recognize that authority that it has over our lives and we would be molded through the work of the Holy Spirit to, be, um, to have our lives molded into the calling of the Scripture. May you convict us of sin and in gentleness rebuke us and, and bring us back in to a deeper and deeper understanding of the love that you have for us. Father, may you bless this community. May you bless the, the clergy, bless the staff, bless the leaders, bless the members, bless the guests that are here today. Bless them more than anything else with a deeper and more intimate knowledge of the gospel. May they understand Christ's love for them more fully, more abundantly, and more intimately than they did yesterday. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. We at Redeemer recently moved into a new building about a year ago, which has been amazing. But pre-pandemic, uh, which is kind of how we do time now, uh, pre-pandemic, uh, we were at an old building, and it was kind of a big open space. And during the week, we allowed some other nonprofits uh, to kind of office there alongside of us. And one of the nonprofits uh, is an organization called Beloved, which you guys have supported in the past. It's a group of women that help women who have been exploited in one way or another. Uh, so they would have their offices and their counseling rooms there, and super fun. We've made great friendships, still some of my dearest friends to this day. But one day, I think it was a Monday or Tuesday, um, they were all gathered together, uh, and they invited me to help to participate alongside them in what is called a health challenge. And so given my physique, this may be shocking to you, uh, but I have never actually been a part of a health challenge. Uh, I didn't know what it was, didn't know what was going on, and so they come over, I say, yes, I'm in. They come over, give me kind of the chart of kind of how we keep track of things. This is on a Monday, let's say. And they said, we're going to start on Thursday, um, and then we're going to check in on Friday to see how day one went. And so I promptly stuck that on the edge of my desk and just completely forgot about it after I filled out the chart. And so we get to Friday morning, and they say, Drew, like, come on over. We're gathering to kind of run through how everybody did on day one. And so I kind of grab the piece of paper and just kind of put my head, you know, walk with my head down in shame over to my seat and just kind of go through category after category where I have failed in whatever it was that I, you know, sought to do in that category. However, we did get to water consumption, and I, you know, quickly was like, oh, I'll go first in this one. And so I felt good about this. I went first in this one. 
And I said, my goal was three cups. And the lady, one of the ladies looked at me with this super judgy face and just goes, three cups, Drew? Like, that, that's it? That was the goal? I looked at her, super judgy right back, and was like, yes, ma'am, three cups. And I wanted to say that I fulfilled that goal. In the morning yesterday, I had a cup of coffee, so my first cup of water was in that. Had a Coke Zero at lunch, also made with water. And for dinner, I had an adult beverage, which you guessed it, also made with water. And so I checked that off the list, and the ladies were very confused. And after a long, traumatic pause, one of them looked at me and just said, Drew, I don't, I don't even understand how you are still alive right now, uh, much less thinking you're passing this health challenge. She was very quick to explain to me that none of those actually count as water, and one of the ladies even explained I was actually dehydrating myself, so I had less water in me than even the day before. Uh, but needless to say, this moment, this entire experience was eye-opening for kind of how I was doing with my, my health at the time. It helped me assess kind of where my life, uh, how I was doing in regards to what I, what I should be doing and how I should be living my life in that category. It served as a warning to me. And in the same way, though there are differences from that story and this passage, in the same way, in a lot of ways, that's really what Jesus is doing with this and other parables in the scriptures. He's using this story for the original audience, as well as for us, as a tool to ask ourselves the question, how am I called to be living my life? And given that calling, am I being faithful to it? You see, the audience that he was speaking to, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, were men stereotypically that loved their money. And they loved it in the way that Jesus had warned them time and time against. So he's offering this story as further warning to them and to us. So he uses these two people, the rich man and Lazarus, and we're going to see kind of a quick comparison of them. Starting with the rich man, we don't even know his name, which is intentional. He lived this lavish lifestyle adorned in the finest of clothes. The purple would have been the, the only the wealthiest could afford. He feasted daily, had trucks of food coming up to his house daily. The dude is living large. If there was a, a real housewives of Galilee, like his lady would have been on the show. Like he was, he was, he was killing it in his day. And to be rich in that day assumes that you are also religious. History tells us, and I don't know, I don't, I'm not going to go into all of this, but history tells us that during this time, there were very few wealthy, non-religious people of the day. And even when we talk about his death, it's different than Lazarus. The rich man was buried, undoubtedly appointed with oil, wrapped and carefully placed in a tomb as someone of his stature would have been. In comparison, we have this guy, Lazarus who, Lazarus, who is named, one of the only people named in Jesus' parables, but he struggled mightily with his finances. This poor man laid at the rich man's gate. The only thing that adorned him, the rich man adorned in the finest of clothing, the only thing that adorned him was his sores. All he had to eat was scraps that fell from the rich man's tables. I mean, imagine what it must have felt like. There's even a, a picture on the front of the bulletin. Imagine what it felt like to be sitting at the bottom of the steps, looking up at the great mansion, watching person after person show up for the party, caterer after caterer bringing the finest of food and drink, 
and you have no chance of partaking. And with his death, we don't even have record of what happened to his body. It was presumably just tossed aside. But then after death, in the afterlife, we continue to see the contrast, but the roles have been flipped. The rich man goes to Haiti, ironically still called the rich man, though he has nothing. When Lazarus is carried up to heaven to be with Abraham's side. In the NIV, in the NRSV, we use the NIV, but you guys use the NRSV. Neither of them really do the Greek justice here. The Greek actually says that he sat on the lap of Abraham. That man pictured on the front of your bulletin, sitting in the lap, being consoled by Father Abraham, loved dearly, welcomed in. So what we have here is Jesus giving us and the Pharisees a more accurate understanding of this rich man, though he had it all on earth, where is he for eternity? He's miserable and apart from God. So we have to ask ourselves, why is this? Why did they end up in these separate places? And is it just because he's rich? Like, is that, you know, that's the big difference here. And I want us to be able to name a few things about money and riches and wealth here, because it's important not to just skip that detail. Or there's, really, there's literally one word that is used to describe this man, rich man. And the first thing I want to say about money is that money in and of itself is not evil. If you're subscribing to a theology that the wealthy are condemned, like you're subscribing to a theology that is not in the scriptures. And you think about it, who is there with Lazarus? Abraham. And who knows the song? Father Abraham had many sons. You sing it with me. Many sons had Father Abraham. So Father Abraham had many sons, also had many cows and many horses and many sheep and many bags of coins. The dude was incredibly wealthy. So if you put the wealthiest dude, one of the wealthiest dude in all of Scripture, and Lazarus is up there with him, they're side by side. We can throw out the theology that the rich are condemned simply because they are rich. Abraham, as Genesis 13, 2 says, Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and gold. Him and his dude Lot, back in the Old Testament in Genesis, had so much money they couldn't even figure out how to be on the same piece of land together. They literally split up because they had so much wealth. And we see that plenty of folks in the New Testament, think about Priscilla, a lady that killed it in the marketplace, was incredibly important in the kingdom of God. So wealth does not equal separate from the kingdom of God. But the second thing we see from this passage is that about money is that we have a God-given commandment to care for the poor with our money. Baked into this parable is the rich man's utter disdain for Lazarus. We can't read this and not see that God is pushing all of us to care deeply for those that are less fortunate in our city and around the globe. The reality is that we cannot, as you know, Thomas Jefferson, you, know, you guys may know him for a lot of things, but as pastors, we almost all know him as the dude that was willing to literally cut out passages of his Bible that he didn't like. I mean, he took scissors, probably took an X-Acto knife to some of them and just said, I don't like that. I'm going to cut that part out. And you probably are not that bold. If you are, like, raise your Bible. I'd love to see it. You're probably not that bold. But you and I are, in, you know, incredibly tempted and also willing to skip over passages of the Bible that challenge us immensely. But we have to admit that these are in there and they're for our good. 
You think about Matthew 25, where Jesus is talking, where, where Jesus is saying, it's the famous passage where Jesus is saying, I didn't know you, and he's saying to them, to the people that are cursed, depart from me into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels, for Jesus is saying, for I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked, naked, and I never say that anything but like a super southern voice. Naked, and you did not give me clothing. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. What? What God is trying to explain to these Pharisees is you don't get the gospel, and I can tell by how you treat the poor. We are called to give the, to do, use our money to care for the less fortunate. And the third thing, as the famous theologian Notorious B.I.G. told us about money, more money, more problems. When we think about money, we have to understand that there is some correlation between having wealth, which includes everybody in this room to an extent, and the temptations that, we, that wealth brings to kind of erode us from the inside out. Let me explain what I mean by this. And we see it in Scripture, Matthew 19, 36. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. That's just the reality of the Scripture. It's in there. We have to say, okay, what does that mean? And I think the first thing that we have to understand is that when we are wealthy— it's just simply harder to admit that we need a Savior. And I don't say this and I say that you don't recognize your needs. I know that as people who are, are you know, especially globally, would be considered you know, the wealthy category, as people who are in that category, it doesn't mean you don't have relational needs. It doesn't mean you're not hurting in some way or another. It doesn't mean you don't have health needs. I do not mean to minimize that for a second. But there is something significant that happens when we are comfortable with our money to the point where we don't have to worry about where our next meal comes from. We don't have to worry about how we're going to keep the lights on in our apartment or our house. We don't have to worry about, oh, can I afford to live somewhere where my kids can go and get a good education? What wealth does, it provides a buffer against those questions, which I'm not saying the buffer is a bad thing, but it comes with a temptation to believe that we are self sufficient, that we do not need God. And you think about the rich man. Yes, he does plead with God to send Lazarus to his brother. So he, the light bulb goes like partially on. Presumably these brothers do not believe and need convincing, but even baked into that question is, oh, if I, if you had only told me what I, what I needed to hear, I would have been fine. The light bulb would have gone off. I would have believed he doesn't even understand his own neediness even as he sits in hell. And the second thing that wealth can do for us is it makes it tempting to just simply feel like you are better than other people. And I say this as, as a part of, you know, it's a we statement, but when you are wealthy, you just simply walk through life with a different experience than those who are poor. And I don't say this as, you know, I'm just talking to the top 10% of, you know, wealth, whatever that category is. There, We're all in this to some degree or another. But when, when it happens, I would say that, you know, most of us in this category, when it, there's something that, something that happens with wealth that can kind of erode our understanding that we are all equal in need of Jesus in the eyes of the Lord. A few years ago, I was invited to go play. I love to play golf. And I was invited to go play at this fancy, swanky golf course called Eastlake, which is kind of down just kind of south of here. 
And I was invited by a buddy I'd never played before. It's kind of, you know, your upper echelon place. You had to, you know, go through a gate to get in there. And so I came over, and I used to, at that point, I drove an old Jeep, uh, which actually I bought from Chris. Um, and it's a sort of, uh, sort of car that, like, you hear me before you see me. Um, and so I'm coming, and I roll up to the gate. My golf clothes are kind of, like, sticking out the back of the Jeep. And, you know, they ask me, who am I with? And I, you know, I say a name. I'm like, this guy's never going to believe me that I even belong in here. And I get to it. And then I pull up to the front, and there's a guy that valets my car. And I was like, buddy, like, you don't have to. Like, it's okay. Like, I'll just drive. And he's like, I actually I do have to. It's part of the rules. And I was like, well, there's no emergency brake. Like, please don't park it on a hill. Like, I might not see it when I come back. Like, just <laughs> be careful with this. And then we get, and I, you know, I get into the clubhouse, and I'm not going to wear a hat, which I messed that up. And then I go up there, and I change shoes, and this guy's like, oh, I'll take your shoes. And I was like, no, 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 like, I'm going to need those at the end. He's like, no, 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 I will clean those. And I was like, you know, they're my good Air Maxes, but, like, you can clean them if you want to. Like, that's fine. And then we go out on the course, and there's a guy that just carries my golf clubs the whole time. And I hit a shot, I get it dirty, and I try to clean. He's like, no, 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 I'll, I clean that. And I'm not saying that any of these things are, are bad in and of itself or evil in and of itself. Like, you know, I, if, you, if you belong in East Lake, like, I'm, I'm happy to come back, like, if you want me to come <laughs> back. Like, don't, I'm not trying to, you know, to get, get myself from not having that. But I'm telling you that when we are, and we, we, we all experience this, like you all, I mean, maybe you don't belong at Eastlake, but like you go to restaurants, you're waited on, you fly in airplanes where somebody literally pushes a cart and, and hands you pretzels or, 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 or peanut, not peanuts anymore, or pretzels or other snacks and, and drinks. Like there is some area of your life where you're being waited on by other people. And if we do not have our eyes open to how this, if, we're, if we are not aware of the temptation to start believing that we are better than other people, it will erode our hearts from the inside out. We have got to recognize that we we have got to fight against the belief that we are better than other people simply because of our money. And we see this in this passage, looking at the rich man, even in hell, even in, even in hell, the light bulb still has not gone off. He wants a, you know, a dip of water. And what does he say? Go get Lazarus to bring it to me. Even in hell, the dude's like, somebody needs to serve me. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is being told here? And I think Jesus is telling these men that their worldview is upside down, is not accurate with the kingdom, that they're not only wrong about how the Father feels about Lazarus and the beggars of their town, they're wrong about how God even feels about them. And we have to recognize that when we are Christians, no matter, you're not saying it's wrong to go to restaurants, not saying it's wrong to fly in airplanes, but we have to recognize that the ground is completely level at the foot of the cross. There's no, there's no tears. There's no tears based on your income level. And I know this is different than how the world works. Like, it is, like you walk through Atlanta and there's areas where, you know, you've got to have a certain level of income to live or to go or to play or to be a part of this club, whatever it is, or to eat at this restaurant. But that's not how the gospel works. You all in a few moments are going to come down these aisles and take communion. And we don't, we don't care if you, uh, you wrote a $100,000 check or, or threw some change into the tithes and offering. You are treated exactly the same in the kingdom of God. In the, in the questions you have to ask yourselves are, how am I treating those who serve me? And the second question is, what am I willing to not do for someone 
else? What tasks are below me that I'm not willing to do? Because the warning to the wealthy and really to all of us is are we willing to live this examined life? Are we willing to look in the mirror? And when we look in the mirror, are we willing to submit to the lordship of Christ? Because the rich man, though he's in hell, brothers and sisters, he's exactly where he wants to be. He's exactly where he wants to be. And though that may sound like a shocking statement to you, hell is simply an eternal existence without God, without his care, without his presence, without God's love, and put simply without ever having to submit to God. He's exactly where he wants to be. C.S. Lewis, a great Anglican thinker, said it best when he said, the gates of hell are locked from the inside. Eternity in hell is simply a not your will, but my will be done. Where the Christian life is the opposite of that, where we say not my will, but your will be done. I understand my sinfulness, my, my, my willingness so often to choose what's wrong for me and for others, so I don't trust my desires. Let me follow yours. I know that I'm like a sheep, so easily distracted, tempted to go astray, So I'll stay close to your word because I need it to guide me. And I get it that it sounds like from this passage in particular, again, thanks Chris, this passage in particular, that Christianity is hard. I mean, give money away. Love on people who are different than you. And if you think this passage is hard, like wait till you get to forgiveness and loving your enemies. Like it just gets more, you know, more challenging as we go. And it's an incredibly high calling, but it's ultimately, brothers and sisters, not about following rules and commandments. No, the desire, the desire to follow the commandments comes from the trust that the Lord has what's best in mind for you. The one that tells us to care for the poor, to give up, to sacrifice, has, that, has your best interest in mind with these commandments. It comes from knowing a God who loved you enough to send his own son to die on a cross for your sins. The deeper that sinks in, the more willing you are to trust him, even in the hard stuff. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, have never put your faith in Christ, but you're ready to say, not my will, but your will be done, know that his arms are open and he offers you love and grace and forgiveness and a role in the kingdom. And if you are a Christian, the question we have to answer is if we are called to live this life of following Jesus, what does it look like to be faithful with all parts of our lives, including our wealth? And let me tell you, this does not start with simply a to-do list of things to give away or ministries to support, though those are good. It doesn't simply start with kind of reorienting your life to where you are, you know, around people who make less money than you, kind of the, 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 the folks that are on hard times in our cities that you're connected to uh, through organizations, wonderful organizations like Lazarus. That is good. Like, push yourself, push your friends, push your family to, to engage in that way. But that's not the first step. The first step is you coming forward and remembering the gospel as you take communion. 
our first step in being changed from the inside out to be people that are not like that rich man, but that see the hurting and are willing to reorient our lives, not to simply use our wealth to please us, but to care for other people, first and foremost means that we, week in and week out, admit that we need a Savior. Admit that we are the poor at the bottom of the steps. Admit that we have a need for forgiveness. And I promise you, the deeper that that sinks in, the more and more you, this church, all of us, in this, all of us Christians in the city, are looking more like Christ and his love for the destitute and the broken. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your kindness and generosity to us. We're so thankful that in our brokenness, you have loved us. In our needs, you have provided for us. And Father, change us from the inside out to where we can be a light in this city, where we can love people who are hurting and we can represent you with dignity and honor. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If we're able to stand together. Drew, thank you so much.